I'm really looking forward to opening God's Word this morning. It's a, it's a topical sermon, which I don't typically do topical sermons per se. And it's one perhaps that you've heard before, but it is something that I put some work into uh, in preparation for this week. Uh, but it's a throwback to the Q&A um, question series that we did last summer and a couple years ago where this question has come up. But I just felt like I needed to recharge my own spiritual life and walk regarding the matter of prayer and praying in 2018. And I don't know if you feel like you know, a sin-sick, shrivel-up soul when you hear the whole topic and matter of prayer and praying, but I do. I, I am in the Word weekly because it's my daily habit and discipline and duty, and it's hard for me sometimes to break away from one discipline, which is hard studying and really trying to get clear on truth and prayer. It's easy to pray for our loved ones and pray for our specific needs, to pray in gratitude for meals that are put before us. We pray as elders regularly. Uh, Weekly, we pray for you in terms of shepherding the flock. We have um, sheets that we go through with um, scenarios on them about um, particular prayer requests that have come to us and needs uh, in the body. And so we pray regularly. We pray through the directory regularly. And we're actually calling ahead now week to week, checking on you saying, what can we pray for you about? So if you get that call, just answer the phone and just make something up. Tell us what's on your heart. And uh, it might actually be a providential moment where you feel like, man, I really needed to be prayed for. And then we send a little note telling them we actually did that. And that's just part of uh, the, the emphasis on prayer that we should have as believers. But if you're like me, When you get outside of structured praying and it comes down to you and taking personal time, it can become hard to stay motivated to put your head down or your eyes up towards heaven, however you choose to pray. If you're driving and praying, please keep your eyes open, right? We need to do that. But to pray regularly, to pray without ceasing and pray with a heart motivation that uh, supersedes just the discipline of praying. We need to pray with uh, a motivation of life, a motivation of relationship in the Lord, and hopefully a motivation that we'll find in Scripture that will sustain you and motivate you to pray more and more fervently and passionately in 2018. One way that I have regularly recharged myself in spiritual disciplines or in spirituality whatsoever is to take the advice of, I think C.S. Lewis said this, that when you're, when you're stuck, when, you, when you, you can't come free out of lethargic uh, thinking and out of the malaise, it's good to wrestle with a hard theological issue. To sort of try to unscrew the inscrutable, to to work on something, to read a hard book, to read something or think about something or debate something in your own mind and try to come clear on it, that can recharge the batteries. And so that's what I'm going to take us through this morning. Why should I pray? Here's the question. If God is in control, if God is sovereign, and he is, ruling with all his determinations in everything, in minute detail, in every event, every day, hour, and minute, then why should we pray at all? We preach from this pulpit a theology, which I think is biblical, which is God is sovereign. He is ruling. He's ruling meticulously in every detail. And so if he's doing that and knows the end from the beginning, then why pray about anything? Why do we engage that? 
How do we find motivation in that? Isn't prayer reduced down to a soliloquy or a monologue where we're just talking, but we're speaking words into the air as if no one is really listening? Does, here's, here's another way to phrase it. Does having a passion for the sovereignty of God quiet our prayer life? Douse the fire of praying because we believe God is in control and we speak about God being in control. We read about God being in control. And does that lessen our participation? Does that demotivate us as if God were some detached playmaster and we're just prayers as actors on a stage? We're just performing something, but he's really got it all. So he's got it all under control, all figured out. So why do we need to pray? Well, let me begin by saying that God is sovereign and his sovereignty should not be taken lightly. And I don't want to dumb down God's sovereignty to answer why we should pray. How sovereign is God? Well, let me just give us a refresher on that. The Bible's filled with the sovereignty of God. Psalm 103, 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his, if you were reading the New American Standard, his sovereignty rules over all. Proverbs 16, 9, the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 21, 1, listen, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Jeremiah 10, 23, this is an interesting one to me. I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself, that it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. Think about how Jesus perceived his own life and ministry under the leadership of the Father. John 5, 19, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. The Father, whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. John 5, 30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That's Jesus. That's the Lord submitting to the sovereignty of the Father. Romans 8, 28, God works all things together for good. Ephesians 1, 11, uh, we've obtained an inheritance having been predestined, listen, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. He works all things according to his own counsel of his will. A few narrative moments, Job, he had lost everything, lost family, lost everything. He said, naked I came to my, from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. That's the sovereignty of God. He's yielding to that. Genesis 50, 20, Joseph, having been sold into enslavement, having flipped everything, came to second-in-command viceroy under Pharaoh. His brothers are there. He reveals himself to his brothers. They think he's going to kill him. He says, look, no, you meant, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. What you meant for evil, all your sins, God was allowing somehow in his perfect plan, and he meant it for a greater good. So here's a couple of familiar dominant sweeping verses where they come directly from the mouth of God. You've heard them before. Isaiah 46.10, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, quote, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Revelation 23.13, Jesus Christ exalted the right hand of the Father. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end end 
Well, many of you know one of the champions of the sovereignty of God went home to be with the Lord earlier this month, R.C. Sproul, um, died at age 78. This month, uh, in 2015, he had had a pretty significant stroke, and so it altered him. Um, His health started to decline in 2015. And we're going to miss him because uh, he went into the hospital. Twelve days later, he died of pulmonary complications. But we'll miss his gravelly voice, right? He sounded like Columbo. He did. And uh, garrulous speech, or he was very chatty. Uh, He had a sense of humor. In 2015, after his stroke, someone... Uh, very graciously said, you know, what do you want left on your tombstone? And he said, you know, just real quick, right back, he said, well, just put on the tombstone, I told you I was sick. (laughs) Maybe a more fitting epithet would be this. This is one of my favorite quotes from him. If there is one single molecule in the universe running around loose, totally free of God's sovereignty, then we have no guarantee that a single promise of God will ever be fulfilled. Once you've seen the truth of God's sovereignty, it's everywhere. It's replete in scripture. It's there and it's popping up everywhere, but it does create confusion sometimes because we do have a will and we have a free will. I would say we don't have an autonomously free will, but we do have a free will and we are morally responsible or culpable for our choices that we make. And they are determinative choices in terms of whether we go to heaven or to hell. But somehow that is all under the sovereign plan and work of God. C.S. Lewis took on this question. He said, if God is sovereign, why should we pray in an article? And this is what he wrote. I think we have it for the screen. Since God is good and is going to do everything for his good, then what difference does our praying make whatsoever? In this case, you could argue that since God is sovereign, why do anything at all? Like breathing or working to put food on the table. The answer is that these things seem natural to us. The natural order of things, how things are, make uh, chewing food, earning money, sleeping, laughing, and everything else normal. And this even for Christians who embrace that God is ruling over our lives from his throne. Yeah, Lewis is brilliant. Uh, Just like eating is something that we are responsible to do and it becomes a natural thing, an intuitive thing for us to do as a Christian We find ourselves naturally, intuitively crying out to God as creator because we are his creatures, because we are made in his image. There's a naturalness to this. So in one sense, don't try to overthink it, just do it. But I think Lewis sells it a little bit short. He ultimately tries in his article to figure this out by leaning more on his creativity and logic and imagination rather than uh, Bible verses. And that's okay. That's why people love Lewis and people who are even unbelievers love Lewis because he's brilliant in that way. But he, he makes prayer in one sense a magical superpower. And I think he's a little squirrely there. He, he says, God grants and refuses our prayers at his own discretion. And he says, when prayer works at all, it works with unlimited it's unlimited by space and time. So it becomes this moment where God says, okay, I'm going to answer that prayer and something amazing is going to happen. And then there's other times where I don't answer the prayer. And so it's as if it's just filling time. And that sells it too short in terms of me being motivated to pray. How do we be, how are we motivated to pray in 2018? There are 
dominionist, hyper-charismatics that will make prayer into some sort of superpower where you can call things into existence or rebuke this and that's happening or, or create nature, you know, or stop the hurricane or stop the tornado. That's not um, what the Bible defines as prayer or praying in the New Testament or the Old Testament for that matter. Um, conservative churches and some legalistic churches can reduce prayer down to a guilt discipline. This is something perhaps we're all more familiar with. My brother's not saved. My sister's not saved. This person died and went to hell. These people are dying and going to hell. We better pray. You better pray. You didn't pray enough, and that's why you didn't get well. You needed to pray more. That's why you're not growing, and it becomes this guilt bomb in our lives. And that's not very motivating to me either, and I don't think it's biblical. So... These are man-centered approaches. And these approaches miss the higher meaning of prayer that is clearly described in Scripture, but I don't know if it's talked about enough. And that is that the sovereignty of God and having a great big view of God is what motivates us to pray. It should be what motivates you to pray. The reason we don't pray is our God is not big enough to us. It's not that we want to reduce God down and say, I better pray so I can involve myself and make something happen with God. It's I need a God who is so big and so glorious and so sovereign that I want to fit in with his plan that he's laid out already for me. Like links in the chain. I want to flip the question on the questioner. Here's the question. If God is sovereign, why pray? Let's flip it around. Why isn't God's sovereignty the best reason to pray? Why isn't God's sovereignty the best reason to pray? And you can fill in any spiritual discipline. The best reason to love one another. The best reason to give your resources. Why isn't God's sovereignty the best reason to go out and evangelize people? Why isn't God's sovereignty the best reason to do anything hard spiritually? To confront a brother or sister in Christ to have a hard conversation about a spiritual issue, to try to win someone out of the vice grip of their own sin. Isn't God's sovereignty the reason not to lay back in the easy chair of spiritual lethargy and say, well, God is sovereign, so now I'm going to sleep. No, God's sovereignty is actually the motivator, if you really believe in God's sovereignty the biblical way, it's the motivation to pray, it's the motivation to do things. So I'm going to try to make the case from Scripture why God's sovereignty is the reason to pray. Number one, we're commanded to pray, and put this on the outline, you're commanded to pray by God who is sovereign. Do you get that? God who is sovereign. He claims himself to be sovereign through self-proclamation. He is sovereign, and he, the sovereign one, commands us to pray. He expects us to pray. Whether or not we can fully put this together... We have to obey this sovereign God. Jesus told his disciples, pray in this way. He assumed in the Sermon on the Mount that the disciples would pray. He said, when you pray, Matthew 6, 5, pray then like this. How do we pray? Listen to the sovereign template here in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Great big God, set apart, holy. Verse 10, your kingdom, which is a word for sovereignty, your rule, Your sovereignty come. Your will be done. Now, does that sound like praying where you're trying to needle into God's business and get something done and, you know, make something happen for you? No, you're praying great big grand themes. 
your will be done on earth as it is in your mind in heaven. Give us this day. And then there are practical needs. Give us daily bread. Forgive us our debts. As we forgive others, you're dealing with your own sin and other people's sins against you. You're, you're working soul care there. Lead us not to temptation. Deliver us from evil or the evil one. For if you forgive others your trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you also. Look at verse or Matthew 7, 7 and 8. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks find. And the one who knocks, it will be open. Now if you just put that verse in an isolated context and look at it like I'm praying to the genie in the bottle. And if I rub hard enough and if I pray hard enough, then things are going to happen for me. You're missing the point. We have to pray in accordance with God's will. And when you ask, seek, and knock for things that are part of God's will, that are lining up with truth and lining up with scripture and lining up with God's motivations, things happen. And it's as if doors are flying open in your life. You didn't cause them to open, but we are participating in the dynamic of prayer. Ephesians 6, put on the full armor of God, right? Paul says in verse 18, though, you're to pray, be praying at all times in the spirit, making supplication with all perseverance for all the saints. First Thessalonians 5, there's an ongoingness to prayer. We're commanded to pray by Jesus Christ and by others. Rejoice always, verse 16, pray without ceasing. Why can Paul say pray without ceasing? Look at the next verse, verse 18 of 1 Thessalonians 5. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So how does the sovereignty of God motivate you to pray without ceasing, to take on a lifestyle of praying all the time, whispering to the Lord? It's because God is sovereignty. He's ruling in events. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for this opportunity, for that opportunity. Now, I'm not trying to preach fatalism. I've heard it taught that, you know, the little boy fell down the steps into the bottom of the steps. He broke his arm. He looked at his arm. He said, well, I'm glad that's over. I mean, we don't want to be like that. We're not fatalist. But we do want to believe that once you fall down and stumble down the steps and you see that, you say, God, this was your will because it took place, because it happened. I wish it wouldn't have happened. I'm sad that it happened, but I'm embracing the fact that this is your will. And within that understanding and that theology, you can pray about things like that. And you can pray ongoingly about good things, happy things, sad things, hard things, awkward things, difficult things, relational things. If you cast all the events under the banner of Romans 8.28, you can pray accordingly saying, God, you are shaping me and molding me and making me more like Jesus Christ. And so I can continue to pray about a lot of things in detail, in humility and in an attitude of dependence. So that's point one. We're commanded to pray by God who is sovereign. Number two, Jesus modeled aggressive praying. He had an aggressive prayer life. Jesus did. That's why it's so great that God took on flesh. God took on humanity so that he could model for us what it looks like to be a godly Christian. He prayed all night a couple times. He prayed at the choosing of the 12 apostles. Did he know who he was going to choose? Did he know God had sovereignly ordained who was going to be chosen? Well, It doesn't really get into the details exactly of what was going on in Christ's mind or his prayer life, but he did feel like he needed to dedicate an entire night in light of this selection. 
He wasn't going to choose wrong. Even Judas Iscariot was not a wrong choice. It was part of God's sovereign will. But because of how significant this selection was going to be for the birthing of the church and the worldwide evangelization movement that was going to take place through these men, it was so important for him to commit and dedicate this selection process to the Lord. We could easily say, well, God is sovereign. He knows what's going to happen. He knows whether my kids are going to know the Lord or not, whether this person's going to know the Lord or not, whether this is going to work out or not, so I'm not going to pray. Or you could say, no, God, you are sovereign. You are ruling, and that's what, what opens the floodgates of my heart to cast cares upon the Lord. There was one time uh, during college, and a, a guy who came here and preached, I think about a year and a half ago, um, Joey Fout, he was a friend of mine in college, and he conducted an all-night prayer vigil. And he has been a prayer warrior his entire life. And we used to get up at 5 in the morning. He would drag me out of bed, and you know, and I, it was freshman year of college, so you're dumb and you'll do anything, right? And we would pray through lists of names, and he would pray for all of his family members by name. And then, you know, after about a year, we stopped getting up at five in the morning and praying like that. And then we were in different dorms and, and we were, it, but we were still in class together in the pastoral ministries track. But during the opener of the class time, the teacher would say, does anybody have anything to share or praises or prayer request? And throughout the next three years, so sophomore, junior, senior year, all of his family members would be picked off where he would say, yes, th- my aunt such and such came to know Christ. You know, this person came to know Christ. He was the only guy that ever scheduled an all-night prayer meeting for Liberty students to come to. And I made it to about 3 in the morning. And I was done. But I'm just saying, uh, you know, prayer is powerful. It does work. And he is motivated as a testimony of someone who believes in the sovereignty of God. Jesus prayed all night or through the night, uh, the night of his crucifixion. Remember that? And he prayed that his, his disciples would not fall away. Do you think he knew the plan? Well, he knew the plan, but he was also praying according to the plan. That's what I believe. John 17, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. He prayed for unity in the body of Christ. He prayed for those who in generations to come would come to faith in Christ. Those who were not part of his immediate company. He prayed for us, in other words, even in that high priestly prayer of John 17. Hebrews 7 25 says he always lives to make intercession for believers. He prayed for God's will to be accomplished. And him praying in light of God's will, I just would make the case that that's what motivated his passion in prayer. John 17, the high priestly prayer, he said, Now, verse 5, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. That's such a significant prayer because he knew he was going to the cross. He knew he had glory before he came to the earth. He knew he was a humble slave here on earth, having been enfleshed with humanity. He knew he was going to die, bury, be buried, and rise again. And he knew he was going to be exalted at the right hand of the Father. And what he didn't do is say, well, I'm just going to go through it now. No, instead of that, he embraced the sovereign plan of God, the sovereign will of God, and said, God, let me be glorified again like I was before I came. Let me re-enter that again. And I think we miss out 
as Christians who believe in the sovereignty of God, we miss out on the energy of prayer and seeing things fulfilled, even in our own hope and faith and love that sparked in our heart as we pray about things that God is doing. In the book of Acts, we don't have time to go through this, but there's a strong theme of prayer for the early church. In the upper room, the 120, they prayed Pentecost down. In Acts, as the story goes, they were always praying for the mission to be fulfilled. Remember Acts 4? You have Peter and John who were released from prison. They were preaching the gospel and they had been incarcerated. They were released and the, and the prayers rose up to heaven in Acts 4.24. When they heard it, They, the church, lifted their voices together to God, and this is how they addressed God. In the ESV and the NIV, I love the way that it shows that they address God. They they say, Sovereign Lord. You have Peter and John who were rescued from prison, and they say, Sovereign Lord. And they don't even talk about the rescue right away. They're still talking about God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And they just pray heaven down. And then Acts 4.31, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Paul's letters, uh, minus Galatians, uh, all, as I read Colossians 1, they all begin with a prayer, with a prayer of intercession. Paul was always praying for believers. He says, I'm always praying for you in his meditations. And he closes epistles that way, saying that he prayed for the church. Romans fifteen thirty. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. So he's always praying, always calling the church to pray. So these two points could be enough for us. And maybe you've heard sermons that stop here where we're commanded to pray, so we pray. And Jesus modeled praying, so we pray. The saints of the the New Testament model praying, so we should do it. So let's just pray for a year and then we'll recharge in 2019. Well, I think the Bible goes deeper and higher with this issue. And I like point three um, in this regard. We pray as the means to God's sovereign ends. I think that's the most important part of the sermon is thinking this point through. We pray as the means to God's sovereign ends. Prayer is God's way to involve us in his sovereign plan. He rules sovereignly, but he calls and commands us to participate in his sovereign will and purposes. Spurgeon put it this way. He said, prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscles of divine omnipotence. Now, I want to be clear right up front to say, again, we're not dumbing God down. We do not change God's mind. You say, yeah, but there's places where it says God relented. He, he wished he never um, made humanity because they were rebelling so much. In Genesis 6, you have the account of the golden calf in Exodus 32, where you have Moses who's praying, God, don't destroy Israel because you just rescued them. Think in terms of your own reputation. You have God uh, repenting after Jonah 
heeded God's warning and, and went back and preached to the Ninevites. The Ninevites repented and, and God relented his judgment, stayed his hand for a time. Isn't God changing his mind? Isn't God reacting to us? Doesn't the Holy Spirit get grieved when we sin? Isn't he reacting to us? Well, in a real sense, God is very dynamically involved in our lives, right? He is responding to us in a relational way. But these accounts in scripture are called what theologians call anthropomorphisms. Say that three times backwards, right? And lose your mind. Anthropomorphisms. Basically what that is saying is that God has human-like characteristics and expresses him in human-like ways to us so that we can relate to him. Does God the Father have a right arm? Well, it says he does, but... God is a spirit, and those who worship him worship in spirit and truth. So he doesn't have a body like ours, but he is seen as having a strong right arm so that we can relate to him as strong. He is our father. He relates to us relationally as a father. But I guarantee you, when we see God in heaven, in the face of Christ, and we, in whatever sense in heaven, we behold the father, in the inner Trinitarian harmony of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, I'm sure he won't look like your dad. I just don't think he will. He's different, but he's powerful, and we're not changing his mind. John 15, 1, Then the Lord said to me, Though Moses and Samuel stand before me, yet my heart would not turn toward this people. Send them out of my sight and let them go. Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. He has said, and he, and will he not do it? Or he has spoken, and will he not fulfill it? James 1 says we should pray to God because he is solid. Uh, the word of God in James 1, 17 says, with God there is no variation or shifting of shadow. So God is immutable he is unchangeable in his nature but this does not subtract from our participation in his sovereign will because he is participatory with us and he is relational with us all at the same time and i just want to tell you look you might be sitting there and tempted to think i'm demotivated to pray because god is unmovable immovable he is unshakable no you want god who is a rock you want god who has designed everything to work out for the good you want god who knows the beginning the middle and the end you want god who is nevertheless participatory with you in light of his sovereignty you want a god that is that big the westminster shorter catechism says um, god is spirit I'm sorry, God is infinite, immutable, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. He is all of these things. He is wonderful that way. Charles Hadden Spurgeon said it this way. He said, our prayers are in the predestination and that God has as much ordained as people's prayers as anything else. And when we pray, we are producing links in the chain of ordained facts Destiny decrees that I should pray. I pray, destiny decrees that I shall be answered, and the answer comes to me. Praying takes, praying in light of the sovereignty of God, listen, takes pressure off. It shouldn't put pressure on. We're praying in light of a God who cares, a God who sees, a God who knows everything. I remember when I was a resident director. 
uh, living with 75 other um, dorm young men and um, dealing with their counseling issues. When I myself was a young man, I was 22, 23 years old when this happened, and I got a knock on the door. And I know this guy still, he's in full-time missionary service and ministry. But as a young man, he came to my door, and his sister had been thrown from an automobile at 2 or 3 in the morning and was you know, forever altered, and he thought she was going to die of hemorrhaging, hemorrhaging and um, blood on the brain and all of that. And so he, he just came knocking at my door. I think my door was unlocked. I found him by bedside throwing himself onto the ground in tears, in abject horror over what had happened. And it was awful, and it was dramatic. And listen, you want to know that God feels that pain with you, and please don't mistakenly hear me to say that because God is unchangeable and, and he, is, he is someone where we're not changing his mind. He is all of that, but he is also one who enters into your life within that sovereign moment. And he is sovereign in that moment. And there were students who gathered around that man and that young man and prayed for him and prayed for his sister prayed for her recovery. But I heard this one young man in there and I was overhearing the prayer time as they were praying and praying and he was trying to be passionate and enter in in a man-centered way at a moment and he said something that was really very unhelpful. And we all say unhelpful things, so I'm not trying to over-criticize, but he said, enough sovereign prayers. No more sovereign prayers. I'm just gonna like take it on myself. I thought, that's not helpful. That's not biblical. And the sovereignty of God is what got this young man through. And he went into full-time ministry. His sister later um, walked with a cane into our chapel service uh, at the college I was working at. And she survived it. And she survived it. Praying in the sovereignty of God really is praying in accordance with God's will. 1 John 5, 14 and 15. And this is the confidence we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. We're asking according to his will. And if we know he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request. This is the confidence. We have the request that we asked of him. Praying is communing with God. It's having a conversation about his will. It's addressing God as sovereign Lord. The best illustration I can sort of try to use here about how do you rest in God's sovereignty as you passionately pray, maybe is bound up in an illustration like this. I like to swim as an exercise, and I am a hacker. I was never trained in swimming, but I was always swimming as a kid, always had pools in my backyard, swimming in Virginia Beach in the ocean and things, and always have been swimming, been a lifeguard. I've been a swim instructor of kids, but I still don't really have good technique or form in swimming. It's sad, but... um. I like to swim, but I'm always trying to swim better and more fluidly. And you see people who really are good at swimming. And there's a difference between people who really glide and me. And, uh, but what I've learned about swimming is that intensity in your arms and legs has to be met with a relaxed um, disposition, both in terms of breathing and fluidity. So you have to be relaxed while you're intense all at the same time. And then you swim well. Oh, so relax and intense. Got it. But the more that you can, through breath control, relax your inside and your muscles on the outside and swim vigorously at the same time, the more fluidly you move across the water. And I think that's what prayer is like. You're praying passionately. You're praying deliberately. You're praying fervently. 
You're praying expectantly, but you're praying all the while being relaxed in resting in the sovereignty of God. Now, how does this work? Let me give you the illustration from James because I'm kind of alluding to it the whole time I'm talking. James 5, if you'll turn there in your Bibles, verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Well, first of all, you need to understand the context here of, of prayer and, and that people who are in desperate need for help, whether it's physical healing or spiritual help, can call elders, spiritual leaders to gather around them and to pray and to pray fervently. So how does this work? Well, I think the key to understanding the question of how this prayer works and actually brings healing about is to understand one key phrase and that is in verse 15 and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick what is the prayer of faith it's like well do the other prayers not work are the other prayers not super empowered how does when does the prayer of faith upload you know i really have wanted this pain in my side to go away. I've really wanted to get better spiritually. I've really wanted this person to be saved. When is the prayer of faith going to upload? Well, I think that the analogy of faith or using all of scripture to help interpret scripture, we have to understand the prayer of faith is when you pray something that is in in accordance with God's will. When you're praying for healing and God wants to heal that person, then that person is raised up. Now, how do I build that from the immediate context? Well, look at what else is God's will here, beginning at verse 15. It will save the one who is sick. Uh, The Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. In other words, confessing sins are God's will. 1 John 1, 9, when you confess God's uh, when you confess your sins, not just one to another, but to the Lord, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. So sin confession is God's will, and that is being dealt with in this prayer time. Also, for people to be saved, if there are people who are not saved, it's God's will that people be saved. God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to eternal life. Second Peter 3, 9. That's praying according to God's will. And healing is God's will too for the Christian because ultimate healing will take place when? When someone goes to be with the Lord, when they are glorified, when they are brought into heaven. And so the prayer will be answered when you pray for healing, physical healing. It it will either be answered in this momentary breath-like existence or it will be answered one day in heaven. I remember praying for my... Uh, praying with my former secretary, Rosemarie Masters, and as she was dying, as she had come to a strong place of contentment, dying of cancer, breathing and, you know, just inhaling and exhaling, and she just looked at me and said, the Lord is not finished with me yet. 
So the Lord was using her and using her testimony through her suffering. And the Bible talks a lot about it. And some of us will suffer ailments that we wish would otherwise be gone. But ultimately, she was relieved of her suffering when she went to be with the Lord. There's another reason I believe that praying according to God's will is the prayer of faith. Verse 17, look at the illustration in James 5. Elijah was a man with a a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently. That's that fervent, energized praying that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Now, Elijah in Jewish culture, was raised up like a demigod. He was someone who had his own statue, like Hercules. That's because he was able to pray, and for three years and six months, according to 1 Kings, things just stopped. Heaven shut up. He was able to stop the rains and, by implication, cause massive drought in the world or the area that he was prayer covering. And then he prayed again. And the heavens opened up and the rains came and the crops grew. So this guy had some superpowers, right? Well, James 5 is very clear to say in verse 17, he is a man. Do you see this? A man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently. So he's just like you and me, right? He put one goat skin on at a time, just like you and I do. I don't know what he wore anyway, but right? Just seeing if you're awake. But, you know, he he prayed. He was a man. He had a sin nature like you and me. And he prayed passionately. He prayed fervently. And he prayed and it stopped raining. And he prayed and it started raining. And so what's the point? Well, the point is this guy who was just like us knew God's timetable. How did he know that? Well, if you read 1 Kings 17 and 18, one of the reoccurring themes that's happening in Elijah's life is God speaking to him. If you know exactly what's going to happen and what God wants to have happen, and you get to pray about that, and then it happens, that's super powerful. That's praying according to God's will. 1 Kings 17, 1, Elijah the Tishbite. Of Tishbite in Gilead said to Ahab, and Ahab was the wicked king who was basically allowing for all the idolatry in God's land with God's people, all these idolatrous Baal worshipers that Elijah was going to take on at Mount Carmel, summon fire down from heaven. How did he do that? Because he's a superhero? No, he knew God wanted him to do that. That's why he said, Hey, pour more water around the altar. Let's make it really, really wet. <laughs> and he praise and it's not him empowering the fire to come down he's just syncing up with god's timetable of what god exactly wanted to do and we see this uh he elijah's talking to ahab talking a big game he says as the lord i'm sure upload the deep you know commanding voice as the lord the god of israel lives before whom i stand there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word The very next verse in 1 Kings 17, verse 2, and the word of the Lord came to him. (laughs) God kept telling Elijah what to do and what to say. And that's why he could pray so fervently. It didn't slow his prayer life down for him to know God's will. Knowing God's will and knowing God was sovereign sped his prayer life up or made it more fervent and more passionate than ever before. He knew God would use his prayers to stop the forces of nature and start them up again. 
So when we are able to pray according to God's will, we can pray powerfully and we can see divine outcomes take place. You say, yeah, but we're not hearing directly from God like Elijah did, so how's this going to work? Well, again, James is writing this example to the New Testament church who by and large do not hear directly from God. So we're supposed to pray in faith and pray passionately, knowing we're just like Elijah, and we'll see things happen. And often we'll see people saved, we'll see people confess sins, sometimes we'll see healing that will take place through the prayers, because it's God's will. Well, how does that work practically? I mean, we're never going to be fervent enough or righteous enough to summon great power. It's God who does it. How does this work? Daniel chapter 9 might be a good way to answer this. Daniel 9. This is a way we can answer it for ourselves as we use the word of God in our prayers. Uh, Daniel, a man like us, uh, verse 1 of chapter 9, if you'll turn there. The first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, a descendant of Amid, he... Um, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, Daniel saying, uh, I perceived in the books. Now, what are the books? These are, this is Bible scrolls. He went to the, you know, the Bible scroll room or whatever and pulled out Jeremiah and said, hey, I'm going to read Jeremiah today. Which Jeremiah? Well, our Jeremiah. He's, Daniel was reading our Old Testament book of the Bible called Jeremiah. So he's reading Jeremiah and it says the books, the number of years he's reading, he's perceived in the books, the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, the prophet must pass before the end of the desolation. Hmm. Let's see 70 years. And we've been in Babylonian captivity. We were taken away from Israel 69 and uh, some wait. I mean, he's, he's going, what must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Wait a minute. It's, you know, it's like it's 2018, whatever the year scheme is back then. Things are about to cycle over. And so based on the word of God, he was prompted in that moment to do this. Then he turned, I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord, my God and made confession saying, Oh Lord, here's the sovereign God prayer. O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps the covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We've sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. Why is he bringing up sin? Why is he bringing up these issues? Why is he putting on sackcloth? Why is he repenting and calling the people of Israel to repent? Is it to change God's mind about something? No, he's just going right into the groove of what he knows God is about to do. He knows God is about to take Israel as a nation and put them back into their land. And he wants to join in with that sovereign event and ruling and that fulfillment of prophecy. He wants to join into it by praying. It's like John at the end of Revelation. Even so come Lord Jesus. Does Jesus need John's prayer for him to come back again? No. John, as someone filled with the Holy Spirit, knowing that God's next timetabled event is Jesus' return, is praying about Jesus' return and pouring his heart out in light of his return. All right, point four. We're assured of divine outcomes. Praying according to God's will doesn't mean we'll always receive what we want. Jesus, he, didn't, he prayed in the garden and had to submit to God's will. 
saying, I don't want to drink the cup of wrath, but nevertheless, not my will, but yours will be, your will be done. Paul had to submit to God saying to, about the thorn in the flesh, your grace is sufficient, your power is perfected in weakness. Praying in this way, it links our hearts with the sovereignty of God, and it's a place where we find rest. Paul went to Corinth. He went there. He was called by God in a vision to go there for six months. In verse 10, he says, I am with you. Um, No one will attack you or harm you. For I have many in the city who are my people. What What do you mean by that? He meant people who will be saved. Did Paul know who those people were? No. I think of Charles Haddon Spurgeon's uh, quip about the fact that we don't know who God has sovereignly elected to be saved. We should witness to everybody, and we can't go up behind somebody and whip up their shirt tail and see if there's an E stamped on their back for elect or not. And so we just witness to the whole world, and the, one, the ones that God is prompting to believe, believe. We see this in Paul and Barnabas. They were preaching in Antioch, and they had... Uh, been rejected by the Jews, and so they turned their preaching to the Gentiles. In Acts thirteen forty eight, says the Gentiles heard this, and they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. I think that we set ourselves up often, and we we think we want a particular outcome to happen. We think something is God's sovereign will, but we don't measure it enough with God's word, and we don't leave our hearts open enough to see how God's going to turn things out for us and work things out for our good and his glory. And we miss out on seeing God's will work out because we don't pray openly enough. We don't pray with a heart that's open to God's will being done. Whether people are healed, whether people are meant to suffer, whether people believe right away or don't, we have to be open to whom God is appointing to eternal life. Evangelism is why um, is, is something that should be sparked by the sovereignty of God as well. And I have to read this quote, J.I. Packer. I think it's up on, on the screen for us. It's one of the most profound ideas about evangelism I've ever read. Nothing is more a stimulus to evangelistic zeal and effort than the assurance of success, which the truth of sovereign election only can give. So far from making evangelism pointless, the sovereignty of God and grace is the one thing that prevents evangelism from being pointless, for it creates the possibility, indeed, the certainty that evangelism will be fruitful. Were it not for the sovereign grace of God, evangelism would be the most futile and useless enterprise that the world has ever seen. And there would be no more complete waste of time under the sun than to preach the Christian gospel. Packer is getting up in years. He'll be with the Lord soon. These quotations, these quotes rather, are are precious to us because they, they wrap a bow around why pray, why witness, because God is sovereign. And last point, it it causes us to grow in our dependence on God. We can cast our whole self on God who's sufficient and perfect. Um, We are changed through prayer ourselves. God doesn't change. He changes us as we pray. And probably the best place for us to end is with a quote from R.C. Sproul. Let me just finish with this, with this sentiment. Prayer is for our benefit It is our privilege to bring the whole of our finite existence into the glory of his infinite presence.